So if you've not turned your Bibles yet to Matthew 16, that's where we will focus our time and attention in the Word of God. Matthew 16, if you need some guidance there, is 822, page 822 on the Black Bibles. As you're turning there, as you're considering this text, we're going to look at verses 13 through 20. And we're going to be thinking about the question of who is Jesus as our primary question for this message. So as we do so, I want to uh, tell you about a few people and see if you can guess who they are. After World War II, there was a man who started his own religion in April of 1948. He said, I am the Christ, the new Messiah. In 1951, he claimed to lead a group of rocket ships from the planet Neophrates and said that he was the new reincarnated Jesus. Anyone know who this is? If you're thinking Francis Pinkovich, you are correct. Let's try again. A Korean man claimed to be the second coming of Jesus, founding a movement called the Unification Movement. His followers were interestingly called the Moonies. This man's name is Sun Moon. Let's see if anyone knows this one. Trial, try it number three. This man orchestrated and led mass suicide of over 900 people, 300 of which were children, as they drank flavor aid laced with poison. He claimed that he was the reincarnation of Jesus, Gandhi, Buddha, and a host of others that I've never even heard of. He is like the clown car of reincarnate saviors. This man's name is Jim Jones. This man claimed to be the Lamb of God and started a cult and has quite crazy hair. His name is David Koresh. Or in present day, right now, an Australian mate who right now leads a cult that claims in his previous life he was Jesus of Nazareth and his wife was Mary Magdalene. His name is A.J. Miller. Now the hardest one of all. A little bit lengthier of a description, so follow with me. There was a man who lived nearly 2,000 years ago in a remote part of the Roman Empire. From the beginning, his mother knew that he was no ordinary person, and so prior to his birth, a heavenly figure appeared to her, announcing that her son would not be a mere mortal man, but would be divine. This prophecy was confirmed by the miraculous character of his birth, accompanied by supernatural signs. The boy was recognized as a great spiritual authority even in his youth. Discussions with recognized experts showed his great superior knowledge of all things religious. As an adult, he left home to engage in an itinerant preaching ministry. He went from village to town with his message of good news, proclaiming that people should forgo their concerns of material things and they should not worry about what they're going to wear and what they should eat. Instead, be concerned with their eternal soul. Because of his teaching and preaching ministry, he gathered around him a number of disciples who were amazed by his teaching and his great character. 
They became convinced this was no ordinary man, but this was the Son of God. Their faith received striking confirmation in the miraculous things that he did. He could reportedly predict the future, heal the sick, cast out demons, and raise the dead. Not everyone proved to be friendly to him, though. At the end of his life, his enemies trumped up charges against him. He was placed on trial before the Roman authorities for crimes against the state. Even after departing from this realm, he did not forsake his devoted followers. Many of them claimed that he had ascended in bodily form into heaven. Others said that he had made appearances to them alive afterwards so that they talked with him and touched him and became convinced that he was not conquered by death. A number of his followers spread the good news about this man, recounting what they had seen him say and do. Eventually, some of these accounts were written down in books and circulated throughout the Roman Empire. Who is this man? My guess is none of you have ever heard his name. He is the great Neo Pythagorean teacher and holy man of the first century. His name is Apollonius of Tyana, a worshiper of Roman gods. In other words, most of us don't recognize that in Jesus' day, there were a lot of people who went around saying and doing things that sounded a lot like Jesus. It's not too different from our day. There is an everyday would-be Christs, would-be Messiahs, self-proclaiming divine human beings. Whether it's A.J. Miller, Miller, who's leading a cult right now in Australia, says that he is Jesus the Christ, and his wife is Mary Magdalene. Or if it's Apollonius of Tyana, Numerous wonder workers reportedly did miracles. Jesus, in one sense, was not unique. But in another sense, he was in a league of his own because he was the one to whom all these other counterfeits were playing off of. We're going to read today's passage and hopefully come to an understanding of who the one true real Messiah, the Christ is. Follow along as I read Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I want to give you the big idea right from the start. 
we know who Jesus is. When we do, when we know who Jesus is, then we will know who we are. Not just you individually, corporately. We will know who we are. Embassy Church, we will know who we are as a church. You will know who you are as a member of that church or a participant in the local church wherever you find your church home. When you know who Jesus is, only then can you know who you are. So first, do we know who Jesus is? Our text begins in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, I've been showing you maps to help you understand where Jesus is, and so we've got another map for you. See the circle? That's Caesarea Philippi. That's above the Sea of Galilee. We don't necessarily know how close Jesus got to Tyre and Sidon. If you remember a few weeks ago when he was confronted by this Canaanite woman, uh, he could have been actually in the cities or he could have just been in the region. Most scholars predict that this moment right here in the gospel, in the life of Jesus, this is the furthest north he will go in this broad region. The furthest north. So kind of where you see Lebanon and Israel meet. Uh, there's a series of mountains there, Mount Hermon. And so he's probably somewhere in that general region. So that helps give you a visual, but what's the background behind saying, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, remember we're not just reading a biography that's telling you all the little details that you need to know about everything that this man did and said. That's not how Matthew has written this biography. He's telling you a theological biography where every little detail says something about God and about Jesus. So what does this detail tell us? Well, this Roman city, Caesarea Philippi, was devoted to the worship of the emperor. Its city name, Caesarea and Philippi, come from two leaders. Tiberius Caesar, that's the Caesarea part. And then Philippi comes from Herod's son, Philip the Tetrarch. Philip was overseeing this region of the, the land, and Herod and Philip worked together to build a new temple there, and that temple was devoted to Augustus Caesar and the worship of Augustus Caesar as the Son of God. I'm not making that up. So I want you to imagine a current day leader claiming divinity, demanding worship, and telling everybody, I am the Son of God. That's what's going on in the day of Jesus. And he's heading into a city and a town where this is prominent. And if you want to imagine this story as historically accurate, you need to realize that Jesus is coming into that region and here speaking of a different kingdom, a different empire, and a different power in the world that is himself. And it's here, of all places. He's never been in this region as far as we know. Here in this place, with all of that in the background, he asks his disciples a point-blank question, something that has been kind of alluded to, but never just, who am I? 
You understand why you wouldn't say that. Or if you drop down to verse 20, look at the very end of our story. It says, he strictly charged the disciples, don't tell anybody that I am, in fact, the Christ. Why would Jesus do that? Any of you find those passages strange? I thought Jesus was all about us spreading the message about who he is. Why is he telling people strictly, do not tell anybody about who I am? If you go into regions where you have got a crazy, tyrannical, powerful leader calling himself the son of God, and you go and you say that you're the son of God, you've got a little bit of a rivalry clash. Furthermore, as you keep reading in our story, the passage we will look at next week, Jesus is so convinced that these guys that he's talking to and all of the surrounding group around him do not get what it means for him to be the son of God or the Christ. They don't get it. They get that that's who he is. They don't get what that means. So watch. As you read along, you'll notice Jesus asks the question, who is the son of man? And that son of man language comes from Daniel 7. We've talked about this a good bit. It is a reference to the son of Adam, the new Adam, the new start of a new humanity. And in Daniel 7, this son of man figure conquers kingdoms. And Jesus references himself as the son of man, a conqueror of the new human race that's going to start over a whole new creation. That's how Jesus refers to himself. Repeatedly. But it's not clear who exactly Jesus is because look at the way the crowds and the people answer the question of who's Jesus. They say, He might be John the Baptist. By the way, John the Baptist has recently been deceased and his head was severed, so he's dead. Or maybe Elijah. Well, Elijah never physically died, but he, in a very strange story, ascended to heaven, and then he's no longer here on the earth, but he's many years prior to the time of Jesus. And then they say, maybe Jeremiah or one of the prophets, namely all these people that they're referencing are dead prophets. That's what brings them all together in terms of what unites these suggestions from the crowd. Dead prophets. So they think Jesus is some sort of like reincarnation of one of these prophets come back to life. Namely, they didn't say he's the son of man. They didn't point to Daniel 7. Nobody's really getting who Jesus is, even though he's saying that he's the son of man, which I only say that to help you understand that when Jesus says that he is the son of man, it is cryptic language to say who he really is, but not really make it clear. Because if you say who you really are, and you're under the umbrella of the Roman Empire, and you don't like rival people in your kingdom, then you're going to get snuffed out real quick. So Jesus is being smart. Not deceptive. He's not telling a lie. He's just being like a wise man sneaking through the Roman government, unnoticed. And people just think he's another prophet. And so Jesus asks a second question. Who do you say that I am? Now, I think there's two reasons why he asked this question. The first reason is because I don't think that the answer given about him being one of the prophets is false, but it's not complete. Jesus is another prophet. But he is not just merely a prophet. So he said, well, that's a good try. What do you guys think? That's one layer. The second layer is, I think at this point of the story, this is, I hope, I hope this is clear to you all, especially this week and next week, this is the turning point in Matthew's gospel. 
So this is kind of like a big shift is happening right here in this story and next week's story. Even the way it's organized, every little facet about reading Matthew, you're at a big shift. And so Jesus, for the first time, is asking them, but who do you say that I am? And they answer, through Peter, representing the rest of the disciples. Notice the question is not to Peter, it's to the disciples. And Peter speaks up. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So here's where we'll find our answer. Do you know who Jesus is? Do we, as a church, do we know who Jesus is? Well, Peter gives an answer, and Jesus says, essentially, you're correct. Blessed are you. You're a blessed man. You have got this figured out, the flesh and blood. Mere mortal man did not reveal this to you. You've got divine help that's helped you realize from the Father in heaven that this is, in fact, who I am. So let's try and figure this out. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? If you're new to Christianity, it would be easy for you to maybe understand that Jesus Christ just might simply be like his last name, right? Jesus, Mr. Christ. But Christ is a title. It it doesn't mean last name. It's the title of Messiah. So here's a slide that should hopefully help you kind of see the flow here. Christ is Christos in Greek. Christos is a Greek translation of a Hebrew word. So hopefully the visual here helps because there's a little bit of layers here. So the first thing you need to realize is when you see Jesus, you're seeing it's Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Now Messiah is a Hebrew word, Messiah. It's got that like guttural sound where you got the little phlegm coming out. And so Messiah is the word that just means anointed one. Now, anointed one is a broad phrase. It could mean you're an anointed as a king, you're anointed as a prophet, you're anointed as a priest. Many different people were in that sense anointed ones, messiahs. But as the Old Testament is developing, and by the time of Jesus, this one phrase, messiah, was about one special anointed one. So, if you were to sum it all up, next slide, Christ means the king. That's the simplest way to understand what Christ means. Jesus, the king, the special anointed king that will reestablish the kingdom of God here on the earth. So hopefully that helps clear up those several steps. Just forget all those steps and realize when you get to the grand conclusion, basically it means you're the king. The king of the Jewish Israelite people that will be a blessing not just to the Israelite people but to the whole world because that was their original plan from the beginning from God. So Peter says that you are the king. But then he says you are also the son of the living God. So what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the son of the living God? Now the living phrase is just to differentiate itself of like dead worthless idols, like statues and little figures in a temple. That he's not one of those kind of gods, but it's a living God. It is a talking God, speaking God, a personal God, alive, not inanimate objects, but a real being. So that's what living means. But what does son of God mean? And my guess is you've heard that phrase quite a bit. A lot of you, I'm looking at your faces, you're a lot of churchgoers in the room. So what does son of God mean? And here's the problem here. You're thinking about what Son of God means, 
based on what you've heard growing up in church, which is the second person of the Holy Trinity, Son of God equals he's God. That's not what it meant. The phrase Son of God was used in both the Old and New Testaments early on during the times of Jesus to refer to a king. Son of God means Son of the King. So, when we did that responsive reading, Nate came up here, he started reading a text, and then you all read a text, and it was from Psalm 2. Easily, one of the top 10 most important Bible passages of the Old Testament to help you understand who Jesus is, Psalm 2. That's why we wanted to like slowly work through it, have you actually read it out loud. And you got to a point in Psalm 2 where you said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Do you remember reading that? And then we read a little later, kiss the son. It just means honor him. You know, where like you bow down and you're like kissing and paying homage to the son. Psalm 2 is not about a divine figure. Psalm 2 is about the Messiah, the anointed one, about a human king. So, in other words, Peter answers the question and says, Jesus, you are the king. The king. That's his answer. He says it in two different ways, by using two different terms that would have been very much associated with Jewish people of his day to understand the long-awaited promised king. So Jesus is a king. Now, does Son of God also have connotations of being divine? Absolutely. And so is Jesus the second person of the Holy Trinity? Absolutely. I'm just telling you, how would the first hearers have understood this? What did Peter mean when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? I think he meant, you are the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that there would be a king that comes and reestablishes the kingdom of God here on the earth. And that's you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, you're right. Correct answer. So is that what you understand Jesus to be? A king. A divine and human king. Fully human. Just like Psalm 2 was talking, there would be a a human king that comes. And although the nations are raging and plotting against the God of the universe, the God sits above his throne and he laughs because they can do nothing compared to his power and his kingdom and his rule and his reign that will never end. That's Jesus. He is that king. So here's your application for this first point. What does this have to do with you? Well, if you understand Jesus to be a king, do you really get that? Jesus asked the first question, who do people say that I am? And they answered with a correct answer, but not fully correct. Therefore, it's possible that you and I could have a correct understanding of Jesus, but not fully correct. You should wrestle with that. You should think through whether or not your understanding of Jesus is fully correct. Fully embracing all that Jesus is, and it makes a difference in the way that you live your life. Namely, if he is the king of the universe, is there anything in your life that looks like you're obeying him, submitting to him, kissing him, honoring him? Or 
Are you just thankful that Jesus came to the earth, died on the cross, forgave you your sins, and be like, all right, good, you did that, let's take care of the Jesus salvation thing, and then now I'll go live my life, and I'll be the king of my life. That is not being a Christian. That is no con- there is no concept of that in Christianity whatsoever. Oh, let me just get Jesus to forgive me of my sins, pray a quick little prayer, and then I will go live my life as if I'm the king of my own life. And if he's king not just over one geographical region, but he's king over every created thing, then this means there is no limit to his reign or his rule or what he might say or speak into every aspect of our lives. Do you see why I say it's uh, possible for us to be in this room and partially get Jesus right? You could get the right title. You could get the right answer on the little quiz. We'd say, who is Jesus? Well, he is the one true king. But the real test is your own heart and life. Do you love this king? Do you see him as an amazing master? Do you want to obey him? Do you read his word and think, yeah, not great advice. I'm going to kind of do my own thing. That's not acknowledging him as king. There are so many times where you need to realize that the decision that you have before you has already been made because the king has spoken in his word of what you should or should not do. That at times, there are clear decisions you need to make. There are sometimes unclear decisions, but clear decisions. And God has already spoken about them in his word. And therefore, you don't really have a decision to make. If you're saying you're a follower of Jesus, then it's my decision is to obey the king. That's point number one. Do we really know who Jesus is? Because when we do, then we will know who we are. And I mean the we in that sentence to be emphasized. Do we know who we are as Christians, as members of his church? Let's read that last half again. Look down at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Who are we, Embassy Church? Let's first start by noticing that Jesus talks to Peter because Peter was the one who on behalf of the disciples spoke up. And so he tells him, I tell you, in the singular, this is not plural disciples, he's talking straight to Peter. It's Jesus and Peter right now in a one-on-one conversation. I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. Some of you may be aware of this. All of you are now going to be aware of this. This phrase, this text, this passage has more ink spilled on it in terms of what it means and what it's saying in the history of Matthew's gospel than any other passage we will read in Matthew. It is the turning point as to whether you believe that the Pope has authority on the earth as the Roman Catholic bishop that oversees all spiritual authority or if you believe that the church, the gathered assembly of Christians, has these spiritual authority over your life. How you land on this text ends up becoming the make or break if you want to be a Roman Catholic or something other than a Roman Catholic. 
So we should kind of think about this because a lot of people who are not Catholics, which is most of you in this room because it's not a Catholic church, we would consider ourselves in the Baptist tradition in terms of how we understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And in that tradition, the church has the ultimate authority. But why does Jesus say here that on this rock, Peter, I will build my church? And that's what the Catholics do. They say he's the first pope and Jesus is going to pass on the authority of the keys of the kingdom through Peter with a succession of popes after him. Even though there is no biblical warrant whatsoever of a succession of popes anywhere. Historically, it doesn't even show up until about mid-200, 300 A.D., And then there's no connection with Peter and Rome, where the Roman Catholic Vatican is kind of headquartered. There's a whole bunch of holes in these arguments, is my point. But here's what I don't want you to do as a non-Catholic person, which, again, many of you I know are in this room non-Catholic, is to look at this text and say that Jesus is not talking about Peter as the one he's building his church on. That's exactly who he's talking to. So when you read the grammar of it, when you read the very sense of what it's trying to say, it is on this rock. What's the rock? Peter. A human being. On Peter, he will build his church. The question is whether or not we want to say that he now has complete rule and authority over the rest of the church, which there's no evidence that it seems he does. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, you'll see that Peter sees himself as a fellow elder with all the other elders and apostles. Like he's just another equal amongst all the other leaders. There's no hint that he is the supreme leader. It is very clear, if you read through both Acts and even the rest of Matthew, that Peter is prominent. He is important. You could say he is like a senior leader amongst the other leaders, but he doesn't have higher authority than the others. I think what Jesus is doing is just a very simple point. Up to this point, nobody has professed that he is the Christ. This has not happened in Jesus' life or ministry yet. Nobody has said what Peter just said. So Jesus hears it. He looks at Peter and he says, yep, that's it. I am going to build my church on people because my church is people. And people that say that I am the Christ, the King, that's going to be my church. And you, Peter, you're the first of what will become many rocks, many stones. There's a play on words here. I think we have it on the slide Simon is the actual dude's name that we're talking about, but he gets a new name here in this story, and that name is Peter. His original name is Simon, but Jesus gives him a new name, like several other stories in the Bible. Abraham becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel, that sort of tradition. Peter becomes a a name. uh, Simon becomes Peter. It's It's a name change, but the name Peter is almost synonymous with the word rock, So again, there's this play on words. He's saying, you, Peter, on this Petros, and so he's saying, Peter, you are the rock that I'm going to build my church on. So in other words, I think one way to understand who we are in light of what Jesus says, here's the next slide, we are the temple of God's presence. Temples are the places where gods dwell in. The church is the temple. So check this out, okay? This is good. This is where you want to pay attention, listen up, make sure you're connecting some dots here. Peter, here's from Jesus. You're the first rock. Did Peter go around and puff his chest and say, I am the rock? No. In fact, 
Read 1 Peter chapter 2. What book was that? Who wrote 1 Peter? Oh, Peter, the guy we're talking about. You guys get this? 1 Peter chapter 2, and he will tell a group of Christians, you are each rocks. Each of you are one rock in the temple that God is building, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So in other words, Jesus is building on the earth a temple, but it is not a building, it is human beings. And that when these human beings come together collectively, they become the very habitat of the presence of God here on this earth. Therefore, the church here is not this building. We all know this, hopefully, amen to that, yes? It is us. This building collapses, no buildings are available, rent is sky high. We could be a church in the middle of the snow in February, just huddled together, we are the church. Anybody up for that? Not too long ago, I know you're laughing, but not too long ago, I was reading about a persecuted church in Romania that is meeting in the middle of the woods, and I saw a picture of snow falling down as they meet together, huddled around a little fire. Friends, the church of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. Because on the rock of people who profess that Jesus is the true king, on that profession of those people, anybody that says that he is the king, and they gather themselves together, his presence is known and felt, and that body of people is an unstoppable force. Do we have that? Church equals? No, not that one. We don't have it. Okay, write this down. Church is an unstoppable assembly. That was an important point. The church is an unstoppable assembly. Notice the language of this text. This is so, so good. Guys, this is the best part of this passage. If this doesn't get you warmed up and encouraged to want to follow Jesus, your king, then you should just give up. Honestly. Seriously. Here it is. I will build my church. I, Jesus, the king, will promise right now to build my church. This is mine. It's not ours. It's not Phil's. It's not elders. It is Jesus's. He purchased it. It's his church. What do you mean he purchased it? With the precious blood that he spilled on the cross of Calvary, he died for it. Can you think of a more expensive cost that could have been paid for us? How does that not melt your heart to think that you are more valuable than you would ever give yourself credit for? Any depression and self-loathing and worthless thoughts of yourself should be crushed by the thought that Jesus will build his church because it's his church. He loves it. He died for it. And it will not fail. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The phrase here is Hades. Gates of hell is just the word Hades. Similar with our Christ thing, Hades is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Sheol. Sheol is the word that means grave. So what's the quick translation, Phil? Here's how you could just rewrite this sentence. The gates of death, the gates of the grave, will not win against the church. This is big time, guys. Think about the thing that would possibly slow down or stop a group of people. 
the biggest thing that could slow down or stop a group of people would not be sickness, would not be strife, inner turmoil, disagreements. And you just start thinking in your mind, what could be the worst thing that could stop a group of people? Like, what would put Embassy Church out of business? Well, if we all died, like literally, physically, if we're all dead, then we no longer exist as a church. And so Jesus stares at death in the face and says, oh, and by the way, the thing that you think might slow me down is actually going to be the thing I'm going to conquer. And when you read ahead, look at verse 21. He's going to make it explicit. We're going to look at this all next week. He's heading his way to Jerusalem, and he tells all of them that he must be killed and on the third day be raised. The gates of death will not stand. This does not mean, this is sometimes confused, because of the language of shall not prevail, that language is offensive, but the language of gates is defensive, so people kind of debate or question, is Jesus saying that the kingdom of darkness and of death and evil, is that going to overtake the church because they're on the offensive and we need to like protect ourselves? That's not the image. The image is that Jesus is doing what? Building. It's getting bigger. It's growing. It's expanding. Campuses are being started. Embassies are being launched all over the place. This is like a franchise movement where there's multiplication of churches and assemblies and gatherings of people. And they're all over the world. And there is not one religion, not one king, not one ruler, not one sort of darkness that's around the world that can stop the force of the church from expanding and growing and being built. It can't. Because Jesus has already conquered the most difficult thing that would stop or slow down the church. He has conquered death. All right, so do you see why this is encouraging? But it's also extremely convicting. Why is it that the church in the United States of America feels so easily stoppable? One church leader goes bad and a whole church could fall apart. If I fall over dead at the end of this sermon, which this has happened, pastors do this. I'm not hoping it does, but I'm sure my wife sitting there says, yes, please, God. If I fall over dead, does Embassy Church just end? Is this church built on Jesus and his gospel or on Christ? I want you to really think about this. I'm gone tomorrow. Does the church end? I mean, the broader church doesn't, but will Embassy? Will Embassy just die because we're really built around one person? If the children's ministry is not up to par, if the music is not slick, if somebody hurt my feelings and I don't want to forgive them, the list goes on and on. The church in America is not living up to its identity. We are not living out of the reality that we are an unstoppable assembly of people that are in full acknowledgement that Jesus has conquered the most difficult thing in the world, death, And one small little thing could happen where children's ministry stuff gets all out of whack and it's like, well, I'm done with that church. In fact, I'm done with church altogether. 
This happens all the time. And it is heartbreaking. It's pathetic to some degree. There is no sense to which we should be thinking about the building of the church as, well, Jesus is going to do it. It's going to be real easy. The very next story, come back next week, we'll think about this more, is not just that Jesus is going to die, but that everybody must take up their cross and follow him to their death. The way he builds his church is through our sacrifice and through our death. Friends, if this church is going to live, it's going to live because we know who Jesus is. The king who dies. And if we're saying that that's our king, but we're not willing to die, even in small little ways, to just even serve to make sure things do go well, or we're not willing to die to ourselves and apologize or ask for forgiveness when turmoil and issue and sin happens in the church, like when you step back and think about it this way, I hope there's a somewhat of an agreement of like, yeah, it's pathetic. The church in America is treated like a hobby. It is treated like an extracurricular activity, an event to add on to my other lists of things I do. It does not define who I am. It's not centered around my relationships. It's just another thing. That doesn't seem to make sense when you read these passages of Scripture. Do we really know who we are, friends? Are we really doing business with it? If he is the king over everything, and therefore he has right and rule and claim over every aspect of our lives, and he purchased us and bought us with his blood, he conquered the very thing that could slow us down or stop us, what excuses do we have other than that we have given our allegiances to a different king or a different kingdom? Repentance in the Christian life is regularly acknowledging that we have sold ourselves out to different kings and different kingdoms. What we are to be together is a community of people that locks our gaze with a laser-like vision. That's the true king, and this is who we are. And therefore, we can be an unstoppable force in all of this community, of every tribe, tongue, and language that's represented here, of every problem or issue or sin, of every sort of sin struggle in our hearts, all of it can be dealt with through King Jesus. So then he gives instructions to his church and he tells Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And so as we conclude, I just want to tell you what these last points mean. The keys of the kingdom mean open and closing, right? That's what keys do. You have a gate or a door. You've got keys in your pocket because you're afraid somebody's going to steal your car. And so you locked it outside in the parking lot. That's what keys do. Only you can go in and start the ignition. Keys to this doors, to the building, right? You get the idea. Keys open and close doors. They allow entrance and exit of some sort of place. So the kingdom of God is here on this earth. There is a place and there is a gathering of Christians and so we baptized Wes and Peter last week because we have been given the keys of the kingdom to say, you are allowed to be entered in to this place of worship as a full member of this church because you are announcing that Jesus is your king and you're repenting of all other allegiances. And so therefore the keys, another way to talk about it is binding or loosing, tying and untying. It's saying, in short, you see the definition here, binding declarations about doctrine and practice, teaching, and the way we live our lives. 
Those are the two things that the church has authority from Jesus to do. If you were to summarize this, all of you coming to the uh, class in just a minute, later today, this means we have a statement of faith, doctrine, teaching, and the church has the authority to summarize who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, and then a covenant. And we as a church have a covenant document that says this is how we will practice living out being a follower of Jesus because Jesus has given us the keys to bind and loose. And if you don't understand that connection, reread the first scripture reading in your bulletin. Matthew chapter 18 uses the same words found here that are not used anywhere else in the New Testament by Jesus. Only here in Matthew 16 and there in Matthew 18 does Jesus use the word church, ecclesia, and bind and loose. And in other words, I think those two passages, when you put them next to each other, are interpreting each other. Do you want to know what bind and loose means? Then read Jesus. He tells you. Matthew 18. When the church enacts the practices or the teaching of the church in real life situations, it's using the keys. So a baptism is using the keys. Church discipline is using the keys. Bringing somebody into membership is using the keys of the kingdom. Telling somebody that you're in sin and it's very clear in the Bible, and you need to repent, or else you will be judged by God, that's using the keys of the kingdom. Taking the Lord's Supper, which is what we're about to do, is using the keys of the kingdom. And Jesus has given us this authority because we are going to be his vessel to build his church, the unstoppable assembly of those who have been called out to make decisions in the world. So let's take the Lord's Supper now. Let's use the keys that Jesus has given us, and let's bind and loose the things that he has said in his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks now for this teaching in your word, for the clarity to which we can look and find who Jesus is and how he has been revealed to us. We thank you that Jesus is a king, that he has all authority, that he is sovereign, that there is no inch on this universe that he does not declare that it is his and that he rules and reigns over. We pray, God, that you would, through your work of the Holy Spirit, that you would have rule and reign on every inch of our hearts and that we would be a people who are fully devoted to your kingdom, that we would prioritize it, that we would not make it just a second or third level of importance, but rather the thing that God is doing in the world is through his church. I pray we'd believe it and our lives would reflect it and that we would make decisions as a community together reflecting these realities. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.